If you have your Bibles, digital or otherwise, if you would turn with us to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, and we'll be there. And we'll also be in Mark chapter 2. So here it goes. Prophet Isaiah writing 2,700 years ago, speaking for God. He says, Isaiah 58, 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I just love this verse. I think about this verse all the time. I love the way it reminds us how similar we are to God in the way that we're created in his image. We have the capacity to love deeply and empathize. But also, it reminds us that there are still so many areas in which he supersedes us. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and our ways are not his ways. Now, if you'll jump over with me to Mark Chapter 2, verse 23, it's the Sabbath day, which is Saturday for the traditional Jew in the first century, Sunday for us in the 21st century. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. They get hungry. It was probably the 1130 service, so why wait? Grab a Snickers. But really, so they start to, they harvest some grain and they eat. The religious leaders are watching. They get angry with them. And check this out. They accuse Jesus of breaking one of the Ten Commandments. And if we pause, you can see pretty quickly there are two different camps forming. They're the Pharisees. Woe is right. A.K.A. the teachers of religious law. A.K.A. the pastors, the preachers of the day versus Jesus. And they both have completely different vantage point. So you have the Pharisees, and their vantage point is from the earth looking up. Their whole MO as followers of God is that when they hear a command of God, their job was to dutifully obey. Then in the other corner of the ring, you have Jesus, who is God in the flesh, who had a completely different vantage point. His was from heaven looking down. And from Jesus' unique perspective, he begins to explain why him and his father created the Sabbath day in the first place. Mark 2.27 says, The Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Then, in case you forgot, I, Jesus, made the Sabbath. And I, Jesus, am above the Sabbath. And then he throws the knockout punch and he's like, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath, right? Booyah, take that. So Jesus is reintroducing a very, very interesting talking point to the Pharisees that they may or may not even realize. Jesus is reminding them that God's thoughts are not their thoughts. And their thoughts And their ways are not God's ways. You see, we do what he asks, but he knows why he asks. Because we see from the earth looking up, but when he speaks, he's seeing from heaven looking down. And ever since Moses shared the Ten Commandments with Israel, religious leaders have spent centuries asking themselves, what does God's word say and how do we apply it? And as a result, They created, they made hundreds of man-made laws to help support the few God-given laws. If God says to honor the Sabbath and and to rest, that must apply to harvesting grain. So let's make a law about it. And if God says to take the Sabbath and rest, that must apply to pressing grapes. So let's make another law about that. But here's the question the religious leaders were not asking. They were not asking, why did God say? They were not asking, why did God create a Sabbath? 
And now this may sound strange. It may sound like we are questioning God. But I think that learning to ask questions like these is a vital part of our spiritual development. I mean, I think we all know what it feels like to be questioned why we're doing what we're doing. Sometimes it's innocent enough. Maybe a first grader runs up to you and says, hey, why are your arms so hairy? Or, hey, Mr. T, I thought I told you to shave your arms. Or, hey, why, Mr. Tito, when you smile, do your teeth look like a horse? I don't know. I don't know. That's, that one's probably just me. That's probably not y'all. But it doesn't always feel honoring. And here's the thing. Asking why isn't inherently bad. It isn't inherently rebellious. It isn't inherently wrong. Asking why with the right heart reflects an earnest desire to really understand the heart behind the instruction. It's a glean from the perspective and the vantage point of another. When you tell a preschooler not to play in the street, they may not understand why, but you do. When you tell your middle or high schooler not to date losers and to save themselves from marriage, they may not fully understand why, but you do. And think of it this way. From earth looking up, traditionally as followers of God, we tend to hear the command, then dutifully obey, no questions asked. But from heaven looking down, God always sees the why. And while we may not always know the why, I believe if we'll seek and try to find the why in God's word, it'll help put his word in context and frame his word out so much more clearly. And this is why it's so important to look to God's word. Because we have to remind ourselves that God's ways are not our ways. We cannot assume that we instinctively always know what he wants us to do and what he doesn't want us to do. Now, if you'll fast forward with me to Mark chapter 3, Jesus has another run-in with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees. And what you'll find is they have this overarching belief system that puts an emphasis on religion over relationship. Commandments over compassion and instructions over empathy. And what you'll see is what happens when we as followers of God look to God's word without discernment. When we're searching only for a promise, when we're searching only for a next step for us, we run the risk of thinking we're doing the right thing when we may be spending our whole lives climbing a ladder that's leaning against the wrong wall. I mean, throughout history, how many well-intentioned men have read into Scripture their biases and predispositions and as a result brought harm to others? And on top of that, how many times has the justification for inexcusable acts of prejudice stemmed from misinterpretation of God's word? For instance, leading up to the Civil War, Many believers in Christ had used the Bible to justify their harsh treatment and ownership of other human beings. And here's where discernment comes in. Although the Bible doesn't have a verse formally and explicitly condemning slavery as a whole, it does preach a timeless message about human dignity and redemption. And that message is what provided the moral and spiritual argument that President Lincoln needed to eliminate the institution of slavery in America. And many people have used the Bible to justify gender inequality for women. 
Yet when we read scripture with discernment, we see how Jesus was intentional to elevate the role of women in a culture that would not even allow a woman to address a man in public. Jesus was found asking questions to women in public places like the women at the well. Including them to be part of his ministry like Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. And even the first person that Jesus allowed to see him after his resurrection was a woman. In the 1930s and 1940s, the Bible was used to perpetuate the oppression of the Jewish people during World War II. Hitler himself often referred to the Bible to justify what him and his regime were doing to men, women, and children. He would quote Matthew 27, 25, how the Jewish crowd shouted for Jesus' crucifixion and how they took responsibility for his death, saying, may his blood be upon us and on our heads and on our children and on their children. You see, when we ignore the context of Scripture, when we ignore why something was written to a particular person or a group of people in a particular scenario, we run the risk of looking at God's word and only finding reflections of what we're wanting to prove or disapprove of. And that's the conversation Jesus has been having up until this point about the Sabbath. The Jewish people with good intentions had been reading God's word and obeying what they thought his word meant. You see, they were reading into God's word their biases and pulling out action points that supported their biases because the Jewish leaders valued religious traditions over people because the priests and the rabbis valued religious rules above showing compassion for people. But when Jesus gives God's vantage point, God's perspective, and explains why, that is when restoration begins. I mean, look at the man with the withered hand in Mark Chapter 3, verse 1. Look at everything he had working against him. It was wildly held assumption back then that any person who was born with or acquired a handicap, it was because of a curse from God for a sin either he had committed or a sin that his parents had committed. And you remember that other story of the man born blind in John chapter 9, verse 3? The story basically goes like this. Hey, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Was it a sin he committed? Was it a sin his parents committed? And Jesus says the most curious thing. Listen to Jesus' why in the example. He said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen carefully. The religious leaders of the day were teaching, if you're sick, if you're disabled, it's because God is against you. But Jesus came to remind his followers, Jesus came to remind the Pharisees, hey, God's ways are not your ways. Your thoughts are not God's thoughts. What you thought was intended for your harm, your shriveled hand, God is intending for your good. The thorn in your side that may make you feel like you're not enough, insecure and less than, is the very fulcrum that God may use to pivot your circumstance. It may be the fork in the road that he's going to use to completely restore you and show you who he really is. Amen. And notice the order of operations here. Jesus gives a command, stand up in front of everyone. I mean, as if the guy didn't already feel singled out enough already. 
as if the man wasn't already sticking out like a sore thumb, no pun intended. And Jesus calls him to do what most of us would just find so uncomfortable, to agree to do something before he has any idea the route that the conversation is going to take. And I'm just wondering, maybe knowing that his pastors, his priests, knowing that the leaders of the synagogue probably thought that his disease was because of something he had done or because of a sin that he would committed in the past, and that chances are they'd probably even use him as an object lesson of what could happen if you disobey God's law, yet on the Sabbath day, he still showed up to church. He wanted God. He wanted truth. He kept coming because something in him knew that God's word could guide his life. Regardless of the judgmental glances he'd walked by from his pastors and congregants alike for being a sinner cursed by God, he still knew that God's word could guide his heart and could guide his mind. And that's why he was there. Verse 4, then Jesus asked them, the Pharisees, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? And here's the why. Here's why God gave this rule, this command. This is so good. I love this. It was to benefit humanity. The Sabbath was to be a day marked by us, the people of God, doing good to one another, doing good for one another. Those who look like us and those who don't. Those who vote like us and those who don't. Those who agree with us and those who don't. And it was to be a day when God would save lives. Father, let that be the case again. Let our Sabbath day be a day that benefits all humanity and a day that you use to save lives. But how do the religious people respond? Not great. It says, but they remain silent. And I want you to notice how upset this makes Jesus. It says he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Friends, do you want to know the kinds of things that bother God? A lack of regard for the sanctity of human life. An inability to see past what makes us different and to see how we were all created in his image. Pastor Jim said it this way. He said, racism offends the heart of God. And God's word says you'll never enter heaven if you say you love me, but you hate someone else. And Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then what? Is there revival? And all the Pharisees, they start trusting in Jesus. And they turn from their wicked ways and they let God heal their land. No. That would be cool, though. The Pharisees see this incredible miracle. God in the flesh completely restoring a human being. Someone God made in his own image. Somebody of whom God knows the number of hairs on his head. Someone that God stitched together in his mother's womb. And do the religious people celebrate and rejoice? No. Verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Friends. The preachers in this context, they could not celebrate a man who had been miraculously set free by God because they were so entrenched in their traditions and so steeped in their bias. 
They needed God to change their hearts. And although they were the ones reading and teaching God's word regularly, they wouldn't allow God to do it. Amen, oh me, or ouch. That's what Pastor Jim says. Here's another question for us today. Rewind our story. Jesus comes to the synagogue. The Pharisees are running the service. They ask Jesus to speak. The man with the shriveled hand goes to the synagogue like he normally does. But I just wonder, what would have happened if Jesus, when he asked the man to stand up in front of everyone, what if he wouldn't have done it? I mean, I'm just so curious. If the man with the shriveled hand had said, hey, Jesus, I mean, I've heard a lot of good things about you. You know, you're a wood whittler turned water walker. Whoop, whoop, that's great. But can't we just go back to the part of the service where we sing a little bit more? I mean, I promise I'll sing a little louder. I promise I'll do it this time. Like, really, I'll do it. And what if the man would have said, no, thank you, Jesus. I'm good. This is just way too awkward. Awkward, right? I just wonder if this story would have turned out completely differently. I wonder if this would not have been included in the three out of the four Gospels. Friends, I don't think he would have experienced this miracle if he hadn't listened to what Jesus asked him to do and been obedient. If he didn't choose to do what was asked of him. And to be honest, I believe God's word always requires a response from us. What did James, Jesus' half-brother, say in James 1.22? Do not be hearers only, but be doers of the word. In a legal contract, this is called a condition. You know, like, I agree that I've read the thousand-page terms and conditions so I can update my iPhone. In geometry and in computer programming, this is called an if-then statement, and the idea is this. If you blank, then blank will happen. Second Chronicles 7.14, perfect example of this. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. In other words, if you look to God's word and he speaks to you, then you need to listen for additional instructions and understand the heart behind them and obey them because God's word always requires a response from us. And sometimes, sometimes we're guilty of only following part of the instructions. We kind of mostly sort of do it, but... We don't completely obey. And maybe for some of us, we don't even wait for application at all. We just tuck it away in our journal. We amen it, but that's kind of it. We feel encouraged. We feel edified, but it starts and ends with us. Never going beyond our ears and our hearts to the ears and the hearts of those around us. Friends, I really think when God heals you, he's doing it for you and someone else. Think about it. The man who had been demon-possessed that Jesus healed in Mark chapter 5, verse 19. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Jesus healed him for him and for everyone else. The woman at the well in John 4, after her encounter with Jesus, she goes and she tells everyone she sees. And hordes of people begin to trust Jesus as a result. Listen, Jesus healed her for her and for everyone else. Friends, If you will look to God's word and try to understand his why and obey what he's asking you to do, then imagine the impact your story can have on others. People who are confused 
and hurt by everything, everything that's going on in our country right now. People who are looking for ways to change the hard hearts and the stubborn minds of those around them for the good. And who better than Jesus to do a miracle like that? Who better than God to speak up? And if we choose to listen, understand why, and really obey, it's then that we give permission for God to change us first and begin the miracle. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, we tend to only see from the earth looking up, but you see from heaven looking down. From your vantage point, you can see the why behind everything that happens in our lives. So help us to learn to ask good questions. But even if we don't get answers, help us to keep trusting in you. Father, your word always requires a response from us. May it be that we make a habit and a lifestyle of habitually looking to your word and discovering why you do the things you do. The heart behind your wise guidance like the man with the shriveled hand we would learn to listen for additional instructions and obey and for those who feel like they have a thorn in their side or a shriveled hand because of what life has thrown their way I pray that they would trust you that you would use that very thing that they thought was a handicap to reveal yourself and bring glory and honor to your name in the mighty name of Jesus Christ the living son of God who died on a cross for our sins and came back to life to give us freedom to conquer death, hell and the grave Father we get to be the light of the world. Help us not to stay silent. In Jesus' name.